0: Proctor with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. CycleConf will be taking place on the 21st through 23rd of April. CycleConf is a conference about CycleJS, a functional reactive programming framework for the front end. Visit CycleConf.com to find out more. The call for presenters is now open for Velocity London 2017. Velocity is inviting proposals from system engineers, architects, developers, system administrators, operation managers, site reliability engineers, and more. People on the front line with stories of great success and worthy failures, especially if they provide clear ideas for what to do next. Proposals will be considered for the following types of presentations, 40-minute presentations, discussions or panels, as well as three-hour tutorials. Deadline to apply is May 2nd. For more information and to submit your proposal, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 68627. The call for presenters is now open for software architecture in London. Proposals will be considered for both 50- and 90-minute presentations, as well as 3-hour tutorials. 50-minute sessions will be interspersed throughout the conference to introduce new concepts, a best practice, a view into the future, while 90-minute sessions will dive deeper, giving you information, techniques, and workflows you can bring back to work and begin using immediately. They are also looking for intense 3-hour tutorials that involve hands-on examples, working with other attendees, and frameworks and processes to implement for significant change in your current architecture. Apply to speak by May 2nd. For more information and to submit your proposal, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash CPC 68630. Tickets for FlatMap Oslo are available now. FlatMap Oslo is a functional programming conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to n o to learn more. ElixirConf EU will be taking place May 4th and 5th with tutorials on May 3rd. ElixirConf EU is a community conference created to promote education, networking, and collaboration with the Erling, Elixir, and Ruby communities. For more information, visit www.elixirconf.eu. OSCON will be taking place May 8th through the 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies and gives you exposure to the full stack and all possible configurations. There's no event quite like OSCON, the best place on earth to sharpen your skills and discover new techniques, making you better at what you do and igniting your love of all things code. Registration is open. Save 20% on most passes with the code USRG. For more information and to register, visit www.orale.com slash pub slash cpc50016. LambdaConf 2017 will be taking place May 25th through 27th in Boulder, Colorado, with training days available on the 22nd and 23rd and many conferences on the 24th. For more information, visit lambdaconf.us. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zablicki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are available. For more information to register, visit elmureup.org. Zurich Hack 2017 will be taking place in Zurich on the 9th through the 11th of June. The zurich Haskell Meetup Group will organize Zurich Hack 2017 a three-day Haskell hackathon hosted at the HSR Hochschule for Technik Rapperswil. This is the sixth Haskell hackathon organized by the Zurich Haskell Meetup Group and the first one which is hosted at the HSR. A fantastic venue located right at Lake Zurich providing space for 300 participants. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack, JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Join hundreds of leading experts, innovators, and web professionals for top-notch training, advanced development and engineering content, and career-building networking opportunities at Fluent. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. Visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash six one three zero nine for more information and to register. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on july twentieth through the twenty first. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in twenty twelve, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. The CFP is currently open and closes Friday, april twenty first, and registration is open as well. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to keep updated. BusConf is a non-profit open space unconference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is already open and you can find out more at wwwbus conforg And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I will be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com. If you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode
1: ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome
0: to Functional Geekery. I'm Maris Proctor. And this week with us, we have Baishampai and Ghost, mostly known as BG. BG, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Hey, Proctor. Thanks a lot for having me here on your podcast. It's a pleasure. To start about myself, yeah, sure. I'm a uh, functional programmer. I'm a career functional programmer. Currently, I'm co founder and CTO at HelpShift. We are building an in app mobile, customer service, SDK for all kinds of mobile and desktop applications. So, a little bit about myself. As I told you, uh, I've always been a functional programmer. How did I get started? When I was in college, I was still learning Emacs. and So, in college, I had absolutely no idea what really mattered and what should I learn and what's computer science really about. But I was really passionate. About my subject and I really wanted to learn but I didn't really have a good peer group in India where I was studying so I went to the internet and I looked for all kinds of stuff so first of all I got introduced to Linux and from there I went deep into the rabbit hole where I was trying out all kinds of editors different programming languages reading about the history of uh, various things and uh Learned a lot about the hacker culture, uh, the origin of Unix and Lisp and all these things. So I got hooked into Emacs because I understood that that was some editor or tool that will probably live with me for the rest of my career. So it was sort of an investment. And then as I got into Emacs, then I saw Emacs Lisp. So initially I completely ignored it. I said, okay, it's some obscure language that must be used for configuring this editor. But then as I went deeper into other languages, I found references to Lisp everywhere. Like I was learning Python or I was learning Perl. And they are talking about some features that have come from Lisp or some ideas that originated in Lisp in some way or the other. And then I also saw Emacs Lisp in my Emacs. And then I read lots of articles from Richard Stallman about Lisp and the whole MIT AI lab, all those things. So eventually I got into SICP to learn more about Lisp. I read it, uh, you know, I did some programming but in short I didn't really get it. I was unable to grok it even then. But then I realized that probably some production experience will really help me in understanding the power of Lisp and where it can be really applied. So as luck would have it, I got a very unique opportunity to work in a early stage startup back in 2008 where they were building a whole air ticket and hotel booking system in Common Lisp. So I was one of the earliest engineers in that team and fresh out of college I joined that team and got into hacking and that's where really honestly speaking I was completely enlightened in a a big way. Shipping a list to production was a very different experience. And of course Common Lisp is still not like closure so I was not yet on the doorsteps of closure, but I was happy in my list plan. But then, uh, you know, again, a freak accident, some bug cropped up in production, which was triggered by my code, but it was ultimately because of mutable references and mutable data structures. And we lost a lot of money because of that bug. No one came and told me anything about it, but I went back and introspected a lot about why that bug happened and what I could have done to avoid it. because. I've always taken a lot of pride in being a good programmer or at least something that I've always wanted to achieve. I wanted to write code that was clean and uh, you know bug free so to speak so i initially I thought that functional programming uh, will uh, be the gateway to towards writing better code but then I also understood that mutability is a big problem right so after you know suffering a lot I, I figured out i chanced upon closure in two thousand and eight and initially again I completely had ignored it because I thought it was yet another Lisp dialect. Because being a communist dialect, you see a lot of Lisp dialects coming up every day, right? And you'd usually just say that okay, some hobby or experiment probably. But as I looked deeper and deeper into closure and the philosophy behind closure and watched Rich's talks, I was fully convinced by two thousand nine that Clojure was going to be the language of the future, or at least, you know, it would lead us towards the future that we want to get to anyway. So, and yeah, in 2009, we started this company and we selected Clojure as the main programming language for the backend, and we have not looked back ever since. So a
0: long history around Lisp then. Yeah. What started the interest in programming and computers and software in the early days if you're going back and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm getting exposed to Linux and Unix and Emacs, and I'm going to be doing this for a while. What was that seed that kind of got you interested just to begin with?
1: Yeah, interestingly, I got into computer science completely blind in the sense that I grew up in a sort of an engineering and hacking kind of background where my uncle is an engineer and he used to do a lot of projects. but he was an electronics and electrical engineer and even though I did see a lot of computers growing up but I grew up in India and also some of the most remote parts of the country and we didn't have internet I didn't have a computer at home but I was always enamored by it and I would read a lot about computing and computers and programming I remember I went to a cyber cafe an internet cafe With a computer programming magazine, I think. And I typed out a long listing of code to just see what happens. (laughs) Well, the code didn't even compile. But that's another story, (laughs) right? It didn't even compile. So I was kind of disappointed. But I kept trying. And I spent a lot of time in all those cyber cafes when I was still in school. But still, I didn't have a computer at home. My first computer, I got my first computer when I was 20 years old. And yeah, I think there was always this curiosity, I would say, about being able to control and program machines and build things. And it was also sort of quite abstract, right? And as a person, I have always taken to abstract ideas and abstract concepts and abstractions and all of these things compared to more concrete stuff. So it was, I think, a match made in heaven, so to speak. So yeah, I got into computing and I was so lucky that I chanced upon Linux right away. I didn't spend any time in Windows or other operating systems. So I got directly into Linux. And from there, I got directly into Emacs <laughs> and they spent all these things. So I think, uh, yeah, I was lucky. So a little bit was,
0: even though you didn't have one, the controlling machine and then maybe the fact that you didn't even have one and it was this abstract concept that you just heard people talk about. Made it that much more appealing and say, okay, well, when I do get my hands on this, I want to go hard because it's not something I'm around from the age of four or five.
1: Exactly. I mean, I've seen a lot of people who had computers when they were kids, right? Those people never became programmers. They always considered the computer as an entertainment device, right? For me, it was something that I could use to build something or maybe learn something, right? In a way, I think I saw the potential of computing even before it was right there in front of my eyes, right? And later, when I was in college, when I did get my computer, I also had the internet. So in that way, all my boundaries, all the gaps were bridged because I was reading stuff that people at MIT were reading. I read S I C T, right? And I found it only because of the internet because no one, even today, not know about that, leave alone back then. So the internet really helped.
0: And so if you come in, you start getting this interest, you start really getting into it in school, and you're like, okay, now I've start getting access to this. I'm starting to take some courses. But you've said you looked at SICP, didn't really get it at that point, which I've heard a lot of people don't. What were you doing in between that helped set that foundation?
1: Yeah, so my whole exposure to programming had been just, you know, two or three years old, Max, right? And at that time, I had no idea. I was hearing about so many programming languages, Java and C Sharp and so many different things. But in my mind, I needed some sort of clarity. I needed to figure out where should I spend my time? Where should I invest? Which language should I learn? Most people pick languages or tools based on job opportunities. For me, it was not that case. I always believed that if I learn how to use a tool well, I will never have a problem with any jobs. So ultimately, now I know in hindsight, in retrospect that I was actually trying to figure out what programming itself was all about, right? By just looking at programming languages, by surveying programming languages, trying to understand what's underneath that, sort of understand uh, computer science itself at a more fundamental level. So. SICP did introduce lots of crazy interesting ideas to me. But then I saw people who were building blogs or maybe some address book, you know, some database backed web application, right? From SICP, it was not clear at all. How do I get from here to building a web page? How do I connect to the database? Because later I figured that SICP was actually teaching you computer science and not necessarily software engineering. Right? But when you are not that knowledgeable, it's easy to conflict orthogonal ideas. So, yeah, so I had some idea about Scheme, I had some idea about Emacs Lisp, and then I was learning all these different languages. I learned Perl for a bit, I did some Python programming, I did some Ruby programming, of course, Java, C, all of those things were there. And then I figured that, okay, hey, it's so easy to build a website in PHP. <laughs> How do I do the same thing in Scheme or even, even Lisp? How will it help me? It was not clear and for me to just Google around and find out what libraries to use or even which dialect of Lisp to use. That was so hard. Which compiler should I use? So I had lots of open questions in my mind at that time. But those questions were not answered directly. Those got answered eventually when I got into a company setting and we were building some production stuff and there were people who knew about the libraries and how to connect to databases and all of that. And that's when I got the bigger picture about programming itself.
0: So you get into that company doing airline bookings and common lists and you're like, I found this, I've got this opportunity in common lists. That seems odd enough in general, before you make the jump to making it in closure. Right. How long were you there at that company to be able to get that real world, use this thing in anger and realize that? Well, because <laughs> some people are like, yeah, this is neat in concept, but yeah, I don't want to use this in anger. Like, I don't want to use this day in and day out. There's a lot of good ideas here, but it's not for me. I'll take those fundamentals and apply them elsewhere. How long were you in working in that common list before
1: you right. realized? So the time period is not that March. I was there for only a year and a half actually. But it was a small team of five people and I single-handedly had built the whole airline booking engine, being it was my first job out of college. So even though the time period was really short, I got to learn a lot of stuff in a very, very short amount of time. And what really stuck out in this, what I really thought was sort of timeless and you know something that I wanted to keep with me was the whole idea of s-expressions to really start from the very basic, right. I really found this whole regular way of writing code really appealing to even my mind because Rich talks about incidental complexity, right. Syntax is also or at times can be a sort of an incidental complexity, right. I think someone said that uh, too much syntactic sugar causes cancer of the semicolon, uh, right. So, so that's what it becomes ultimately. So, in common list, what I realized was that it doesn't matter what new semantic I introduce to the language, the language still remains regular, right? And that's something that really, really attracted me because I thought that, okay, now this whole baggage of the language itself is out of the picture, I can now focus on the problem. So, again, it goes back to Rich's whole idea of incidental complexity and sort of managing that and allowing people to be more productive and be able to write the algorithm without worrying about satisfying the compiler or the language runtime. So that's something that I really liked. Of course, macros, I saw the power of macros, I wrote some macros myself. It was much harder to write correct macros in common List, but yeah, it's easy to see the power of it and I always crack this joke that with Lisp. I felt like a Sith Lord, you know, because I had so much power and I felt I could really (laughs) do whatever I wanted. Uh, I was sort of limited by my own imagination in a way. So that's what really brought me really close to the whole idea, the Lisp way of thinking. I really got attached to that.
0: And that sounds like a testament to Lisp, especially with You read some of these older books on LISP where they're talking about, we've got this huge advantage if we use a LISP. Paul Graham's done it. Uh, A number of other people have been talking about that LISP advantage. If you're just out of college and you've been in there for a year and a half, but you've already written a booking system for airline travel and gotten it into production, that sounds like a testament to the power of the language and being able to really do it if you're able to do it well.
1: Absolutely. And the whole company was built by a team of five people back then. So, the long story short, later they replaced the five people team and the code codebase with 60 people and they rewrote the whole thing in Java in three years. So, that's another story for another podcast maybe, but that's what happened. So, I saw many things in front of me, right in front of me, right? I had read stories of by uh, Jamie Zominski where he talked about what happened at Netscape after they acquired some company and how did Netscape really fail ultimately. It was bureaucracy. It was not about technology or programming or not having good people. So I saw the glimpses of uh, similar stuff in my uh, previous company as well. And I figured that I wanted to keep working on good problems. I don't want to be mired in all kinds of people, politics and know and when you have the technical leaders who themselves don't trust the technology that you are using it becomes a very tough problem so I realized one thing right so the key to be able to found a company on Lisp is that the founders themselves have to be Lisp experts it worked for Paul Graham because Paul Graham is a Lisp expert and whoever it has worked for they themselves were completely sold on the Lisp idea right it was not a borrowed idea from someone else because then it's very easy to lose trust because it's a non-mainstream idea and you will be very alone when you support that idea. Imagine using Clojure in 2008, 2009. Those were crazy days.
0: And so you get exposed to closure, and put it on the radar. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just someone's writing their list just because you write a list. Everybody does it and probably whatever language that they're in. Just, to understand at some point. You find the problem with the immutability around the same time. What were some of those things besides the immutability that said, Oh, closure's this real thing? I need to go back and look at it. And what appealed about closure over common lists so that when you go and start help shift, you're like, I'm keeping lists, I understand the power, but we're picking closure versus a scheme versus a common list versus whatever. Where was that focus with closure that came right. in and said yeah.
1: I think uh, ultimately I'll probably be paraphrasing Rich now because you know the way Rich has articulated the ideas behind closure, they are embedded in my mind now but back then also it was sort of a similar sentiment. CommonList is a really is I think the most powerful programming language in existence in terms of what it allows the programmer to be able to accomplish but that also has a problem because you can code how you write your code sort of I think in a company it needs to be sort of standardized in some way. It needs to be homogeneous. People should not be able to write the same piece of code in five different ways. That I feel is a really bad idea. So Commolism allowed you to do all of that, right? They had free reader macros. It's a free for all in a sense in Commolism. You could do anything, mutation is fine, reader macros you can introduce them anywhere, right? And Data structures were sort of again lacking mostly but you could use lists to emulate any kind of data structure, right? So that was one of the problems that it was way too flexible and it was not opinionated. So I am a very opinionated person because I feel opinion comes from knowledge. If you don't know then of course you will not have an opinion, you just say okay do however you want. So I feel that it was the responsibility of the language designer to have an opinion So that programmers can either align with it or not, right? It's a very clear sort of proposition. But in common list, it's very hard because everyone has their own flavor of common list and they are also mutually incompatible, right? That was another problem that I faced, right? All these people in the common list community, they are brilliant programmers, brilliant people, okay? One guy has written so many libraries, but The interop story was really bad. So, someone would use some reader macro that would conflict with some other library and just, you know, you just can't predict stuff. And that was one thing. The ecosystem was also a problem. I feel, even though Commolist has a great compiler ecosystem, it has lots of amazing high-performance compilers. But overall, as far as the runtime is concerned, the libraries are concerned, and overall tooling infrastructure around is concerned, it was lacking. In our company, in that previous company itself, we had to integrate with some payment gateway and the payment gateway just gave us a jar and they said, okay, use it however you can. And people in our team tried to, you know, load that jar into Lisp and somehow use it. Completely failed and rewrote that part in Java. I didn't want to go there because that's a sort of a, it's a failure, right? I don't—I didn't want to fail like that. It's very disappointing, right? you trust a language but then somehow ecosystem kind of fails you so i realized that ecosystem is going to be a really important thing for any language so for a new language to come up today and establish themselves in this sort of ecosystem is really hard so you have to sort of piggyback on an existing ecosystem so rich made multiple attempts to do that before uh, writing closure he tried to bridge common Lisp and java through two different attempts, uh, JFLY and FOIL, and both of them didn't work uh, as he had expected because there are impedance mismatches that you can't just work around in any way. So he decided to write a new language. So these are I think some of the parts that when I looked at closure and also most importantly I would say how Rich himself articulated the overall principles. I think it was really crucial back then because we didn't have much material to read. So I only had the Closure source code, that's what I read to understand and I listened to Rich and heard what he had to say about programming and eventually I figured that Closure is going to be the right thing because it had everything. So it did give you the freedom of expressivity but at the same time it won't allow you to do it in a way that you write code that is incompatible with someone else's code easily at least you can't do that. Macros, I feel, where the whole idea of auto-gensoning and qualifying uh, symbols in Clojure. I think it's a master stroke. It's a great idea. It allows you to write better macros much more easily. And also this whole hosted language thing, I think it was a great idea. And uh, it has worked out really well for us. Today, I am not worried about any library or anything. Okay. I just have my closure, and I can build anything because... If it's there in Java, then I can build it. Or if it's even it's not there, then I'll write it.
0: And so you get hooked, you start this, and you said you started HelpShift in 2009.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Early days, wild, wild west of closure. What was that like when you decided to take the bet and say, we're starting this, and not only are we starting this, as Mohit said in his episode, we're starting this in India, where a lot of people are going the Java route, or... Maybe at that point, you're getting a lot of .NET stuff, very yeah. much big enterprise focus. What was it like trying to go through and say, we're out here, we only need a few people, but to find a few people on Closure in 2009, nonetheless, what was that getting started process like for you?
1: I won't say it was easy, but I have a completely different thesis around team building. I don't believe in finding people. I believe in growing them. In cultivating them so our hiring thesis from the day zero has been really clear we are looking for people who are passionate about their craft right so you want to learn closure because you want to become a better programmer and you want to have fun in programming and you want to learn more about computer science right and that is your motivation as long as you have that motivation I will teach closure to you so even today I mean we are more than 100 people here Every new employee who joins the closure team gets onboarded by me personally. So we have maintained that for, since day zero. So I think finding people, yes, if you want 100 people overnight, that will be really hard. But I think that will be hard even for any language. It doesn't matter. Uh, even if it's Java, good Java programmers are really rare, right? Of course, there are many programmers who claim to be Java programmers, but they don't know much about Java or the JVM. So, I feel that hiring good programmers will always remain a challenge irrespective of the technology stack. Yes, of course, if you want to just fill in the seats and hire lots of people who are not that good, then maybe getting on a hype train will help. But it never really mattered to us. We were small. We have been small through our existence. So, the key thing here is that as long as you are using a very mature tool, and you have you know good practices around that tool you will not need too many people to get your uh, job done
0: and it sounds like as you said just finding good developers is hard in general closure seems to have it easier now because people know what it is at least there's enough people out there who want to do it that could say hey you're doing closure i might not be doing it now but i'm willing to learn it what was it like in the early days when most people probably hadn't even heard of this thing and you're saying hey we've got this language you've never even heard of it but trust us like right. we trust you're good we'll train you in it but from the flip side is like having people that say do i really trust that this is not going to be a career killer because i'm buying into the next whatever and i'm not going to be able to find a job after this because like right.
1: like right. Right. so back then i think Especially for me, one thing that helped me build confidence in the community was the quality of the people. The IRC channel was a really small channel, Rich used to hang out there all the time. And we had people like Phil Hagelberg and lots of other people who were really well known in other programming communities. I saw them coming into closure. So, Phil Hagelberg, for example, came from a Ruby background. There were other people who came from Java backgrounds. Other people from JavaScript background like David Nolan, .NET people. And all of these people, I found them that, okay, they are really serious professionals, first of all. They are also highly accomplished in their fields. And then they are taking interest in this language closure, right? And Which also to me seems to be a really good language. So I felt that I was in a sort of in a good company of people and sort of validated my choice in one way. That was one thing. Another thing was that, which was sort of a contingency sort of plan. I said that, okay, whatever language I have right now in closure, in terms of closure, which was pre 1.0 release, point nine five or nine six, I think. I said I don't need anything else. That's all I need. I can build anything else and everything that I need, and I that's not there. I can build it on top of what's already there. If you really think about it, Clojure has not changed at all since 2008. I mean, there are probably, there has been one breaking change in the language, that's all. So, even then I felt that I had all the language that I needed and of course all the ecosystem, right? Because most of the work goes in building an ecosystem, in Clojure, the Java ecosystem at least was already there. So, you could get some code that you can get to work if you don't want to write it yourself, right? So that problem was already solved. So I thought that as long as I understand what I'm doing, I don't need anyone else. I can do it, right? I had that kind of confidence and closure being a high quality project and so well thought out, so well designed really gave me that kind of confidence. And I think we have been all vindicated now.
0: And I don't think it was too much longer after that. So I, I'm curious about the timeline, but one of the other yeah. reasons I wanted to get you on was you started playing at Clojure. You and Alex are kind of the people now who help maintain it and get people's feeds added in. Right. Clojure was my, essentially my first real functional programming language. I had some LISP background. In college, professor was okay that taught it. It didn't actually do a good job at that point for where I was for it to click for me. When everything's a list, even lists, and everything's a, it's like okay, that's good. But what does that mean? That sounds like very zen. But like everything's a list. Okay, so how do you do everything? Well, it's all a list. It's like, and I'm like, okay, I've got exposure. So when I actually started looking into things, closure was that first one that clicked, and then I went back and did the SICP and stuff after starting clicking. But practicing it, doing the Project Oilers, doing all this, what helped solidify it was Planet Closure for me. I somehow stumbled across that and said here's an rss feed that i can subscribe to that's got a lot of these other people as you mentioned in that ecosystem that's building up the ecosystem that talks about all this stuff and i can just get a fire hose of information coming in at the early days how did you come up with that what was that start that helped create this because it's still going strong even now and i know people like what? yeah it's it's an amazing resource for people to. because i know it was for me that I did project Euler problems, pushed it out there, and I had people that I didn't even know, like, here, try doing this. What about this? This would be, like, Let's, think about this. It's, you just blew yeah, my it, mind it, on this stuff. That's the beauty
1: of the community. Absolutely, absolutely. So before I got into closure, I was quite active in many, many free and open source software projects like Ubuntu, Debian, the Python community itself. So there is this notion of concept of having planets there, right? So, developers would blog and... The project would have a aggregator of some sort, which would aggregate the blog posts from all the developers. So I was quite used to consuming Planet feeds from different planets, like Planet. Our was not there, but Planet PostgreSQL, I remember Planet Gnome, Planet KD, and then further languages as well. So I, I, so back then, I really wanted to track what people are talking about about closure closure was not yet popular on twitter people were not yet talking about programming languages on twitter as much so but people were still blogging blogging was a big thing so i also wanted to learn irc channel was one thing the mailing list uh, even today is going great uh, there was another great resource but i also wanted not only wanted to aggregate but I also thought that maybe it would be a good service to the community and people will be able to read about what other people in the community are talking about right so uh, it's a sort of a great way of uh, sharing knowledge and also something that I community is that we talk more about the philosophy of programming and the architectures and uh, design patterns and all these things than how to use this library to download some image from the internet right mostly Clojure programmers are talking about more meta subjects so I really love that and it was very crucial for me to track what's happening in the community back then so I thought okay why not set something up so yeah it was just a cron job and I thought that I didn't want to have any sort of administrative overhead for myself I didn't want to I didn't want to sort of be the curator and editor so I figured out by myself a, a, a very clean way for people to just add their own fields to a GitHub pull request, and then there is a simple cron job that pulls the data from Git and refreshes the feeds. And that server has been running for how many years now? I It's crazy. It's running a lot of by that. And while
0: it is isn't Clojure, I have to give you credit and props and congratulations to how simple you made it. Because <laughs> as I said, I started in Clojure, then I went to Erlang, and I was like, I'm spoiled. Where's my planet feed for Erlang? And after a year of finding an existing one that was never around, could find no owner, I then reached out to you and said, I love this. Can you give me some advice? And you're like, yeah, just clone it. And like, here's the three lines of whatever you need for your cron job and something else that'll get it going. And yeah, Yeah. you managed to make it amazingly simple for someone to just (laughs) be able to go say, yes, add my feed, add this and contribute. And it's an amazing resource that I still check out to keep a pulse on closure. The occasionally and. Hooked up to Twitter, so it's like I'll see the stuff come through Twitter so occasionally too, in case I miss the RSS feed because I don't right. open my open my feed reader.
1: Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And so you've
0: been at Helpshift doing closure for a while. You're still all in. You're growing your team. What about closure sticking? You mentioned that there was like one breaking change in the history that you've dealt with. What about closure sticking and gets you excited today other than just the raw power that is there? Is there anything after using it for eight years now almost that says I finally boiled it down to its essence and it's this? And then maybe what other stuff is keeping you excited as you start to see how closure is progressing but still staying the same?
1: I think in its very essence, closure is, is more like an idea than just an implementation of some language right and that idea is very pervasive if you really think about closure script and datomic and data script and even react and what's happening in the whole frontend scene i see influences from closure permeating into the whole ecosystem okay and that's what i think keeps me excited because i sort of get this feeling that we are at least trying to improve our craft Because generally, I have been extremely disappointed with our own field because we have not made any progress in the last 50 years or so many years because we keep reinventing stuff, of course. But building software is hard even today because we don't even understand what we are building, right? So we now have a language which I think allows us to sort of build isolated systems really well. Now, we need to sort of think about how to extrapolate this whole philosophy to even distributed systems. Rich talked about it in his talk, the language of the system, right? So, that is still an unsolved problem. And I feel that the core ideas for solving that kind of a problem, I think, will probably originate in the closure community itself, right? That's absolutely possible. And then... I see other people taking these ideas and implementing them in their languages. And everyone uh, improves, right? The whole craft itself improves. So, it's sort of like being at the epicenter of cutting-edge thought in our field, right? So, closure in, in some way embodies that kind of a culture and uh, thought process for me. So, I think that's why I'm looking forward to closure in terms of what it will bring forward for us for example closure dot spec i feel again is a masterstroke the paper has been lying around for years now no one thought about implementing it in a language right but again it took some people from the closure community to think how to solve that problem
0: and that's one of the things i really admired about closure was there are a number of languages out there that you could say are the great artists but closure probably is kind of the and i Might screw this up, but I want to say the Pablo Picasso of all the languages that are the great artists where it's like, let me me
1: draw the simplest bison, right?
0: Yeah. The simple cow, simple bison, whatever it is, along with the fact that I think the quote was Picasso's as well, where good artists copy, great artists steal.
1: Right.
0: Where that's a great idea from type systems. Let me fold that in and create closure spec. Data log, prologue. Okay. Let's fold this stuff. We're going to, we're going to steal it and make it our own. And then we're going to push it back out to everybody with our little twist on it. And it seems one of those things that is exciting about that culture of closure. and one of the things that got me to excited about doing the podcast was there are a handful of these things out there. It's what can we steal from each other and make, tweak, improve, and push back out? And I think closure is one of those communities that with Rich and a few of the other early members in that community... We're all about stealing the ideas because you mentioned they came from Java. They came from Ruby. They came from .NET. They came from everywhere. Went to Closure, yeah. took all those ideas, folded them all in together, put something out there, and let it permeate. So, again, I don't know if that's first experience of a functional programming language, so it's been tainted. Although I do, there's a number of others that are great ideas out there as well. But there was something special about that community that closure's is not only, we're going to go down and do research and figure out how we do this but we're going to push it out there too. Absolutely. Instead of just being, this is a research project or we're doing this. It works. This is our own little secret. Right. If we tell anybody about this, we're going to lose our advantage because we've got an advantage here. You're like, no, we got an advantage. You can go do this and you can try and catch up, but you're not going to. So we don't care about telling you what the secret sauce is because you won't be able to reproduce it.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. I think, Clojure has done more than just being a programming language. It has been sort of a torchbearer for very advanced and cutting edge shots in our field. And also implemented for people to actually use and try, right. And that is more important. It's more important than just writing a paper or writing some prototype code.
0: So you're doing Closure. You mentioned the community. You mentioned Closure Script and pulling this in. Are you doing anything else around Datomic or Closure as you're going with some of these things, or are you just mainly in the Closure side? And then anything else is still the other technologies. Are you still going like we can go Closure as much as we can? If we're doing JavaScript, it's not JavaScript. It's Closure Script when we can get away with it. Specifically in
1: my company, I can tell you that. It's not easy or trivial now because the company is a... we are a big company, sort of. It's not easy or trivial to introduce a new language for some other part of the stack. For example, the front-end. ClojureScript, it's not easy for us to adopt ClojureScript now because as I always joke, I always say that it's easy to get rid of the JavaScript that we have and replace it with ClojureScript. But what about all the JavaScript programmers that we have? So. For them to sort of upgrade their whole uh, thinking process. Because Clojure is not just another language, right? It's a whole new way of looking at how to solve problems. So, it's not that trivial, I guess, to replace uh, maybe half a million lines of JavaScript code and rewrite everything in Clojure. But we are making small inroads in the sense that we have now shifted to React. So, everyone is writing React code now. So, of course, they are learning a lot about the virtues of functional programming. Some of the good ideas behind functional programming. And then there are libraries like underscore.js and stuff, which basically implements closure Core for JavaScript, right? So people are using that. So I think people sort of need to also develop a taste for something and face the problems that exist first before they go for the solution. Because if you... Go for a solution without even facing the problem, then you will not really be able to appreciate what the solution has to offer to you and most JavaScript programmers, very few JavaScript programmers actually are doing any sort of cutting edge programming work because you know it's mostly in the UI stuff, so there is not much interesting there but of course, if you bring in core async and related things, then it becomes interesting for javascript programmers it's I think really hard to look elsewhere because the whole field itself is in so much flux. There are new tools and new extensions coming up. So I guess people need to take a few steps back and look at their tools, but JavaScript guys have not been able to do it because of their own workload and also the inherent flux in the community. And so
0: you also mentioned your early exposure, Closure was like, ah, oh, this is just another list. We kind of talked about script are there any other lists out there that you've seen come along that kind of intrigue you or excite you personally? Again, everybody's got a variation. Everybody's got something else that does the list. Is there any that kind of stick out that says, yes, I am I like Clojure, I like it, but maybe there's some other ideas around common lists has evolved again or any of these other things. Is there any other lists that are kind of appealing to you?
1: I think Racket as a platform is a great platform for creating Domain-specific languages and doing really crazy stuff. So I really love the racket community because of their, of course, their their personalities and the kind of interesting work that they do. Racket will probably act as a sort of a experimentation lab for cutting uh, language research, and that's what that's what they are doing, right? So I expect some very interesting stuff to come out from there, which already has already has sort of permeated into closure in many ways like logic programming right it came from mini and so yeah i think if i had to pick some other list which is not closure i would probably go for racket today because it provides me with good enough performance and lots of flexibility and otherwise if i really care about performance then i'll, then I'll go for common list because it's very hard to beat that
0: and then is there anything every now and then it sounds like every year at least once Rich Hickey drops a bomb in one of his keynotes <laughs> or something. I don't know if he dropped it this year or if he's waiting for Closure West, maybe. But at one of the Closure Cons or the Closure West or something, at least one thing big about the core closure community comes out, if not multiple. Right. What's some of the stuff that you're looking forward to? You mentioned closure spec. What's some of the stuff that's saying, yeah, we might not be using that now, but on those parts that's coming down that roadmap of closure, that we would love to kind of find that spot that would solve these problems that are there because we use it in anger. But right. it's still not bad. It's still not bad as it is today, but this could make it so much more impressive. Honestly speaking, I have
1: nothing on my wish list for closure because anyway, Clojure doesn't have any feature that's on the roadmap. There are no new language features that are coming up. Clojure.spec itself is a big thing. And I've already done some experimentation. I've given a talk internally I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to leveraging Clojure.spec in various uh, ways and in various contexts and maybe in ways that I had not even imagined. Because I think that, so I don't know whether you've read the paper called Parsing with Derivatives by Matt Might. The paper is the basis for Clojure.spec and it's a brilliant paper. It gave me a completely different perspective towards parsing itself how we use regexes and we don't write proper parsers and stuff. So I think spec really sort of fits in that gap, and uh, I think it will uh, open up completely new ways of programming, whether it's parsing data or function arguments or stuff.
0: And then we're getting close to our time, but we've still got some time, and there's still a few things we can touch on, but I wanted to make sure... In our conversation so far, is there anything that's come up that you think we should expound further, make more mention to, you thought back, you're like, oh, I need to mention that, or just any other thing based off the stuff we talked about, or haven't actually gotten to, that you want to make mention to and maybe discuss
1: to the audience a little bit? Yes. So one thing I wanted to talk about is that over time, after doing programming for almost a decade now, in Clojure and other languages, and solving different kinds of problems, What I've really realized is that as programmers, we put too much emphasis on the programming language. The problems are not in the small. The problems are in the large. And especially, and more so now, because today, whatever we build, everything is distributed or has to be distributed in some way. right? So I feel programming languages can't really help you solve those problems. And as programmers, I don't think we pay much attention to building systems but we think more in terms of writing programs so I think that as a community we need to shift our mindset a little bit and think more in terms of systems and building systems and how systems behave versus writing programs because programs live in an idealized world which is the runtime of your language where nothing can go wrong but when you build a system that's where you know the systems exist in the real world and in the real world all these guarantees that are provided by language runtimes they are not applicable and I feel that the mindset that is required to be building systems versus just writing uh, programs is very different and we need to start thinking along those lines now because very soon it will be a massive problem because we are talking about IoT and a massive explosion of systems everywhere, right? We already are carrying supercomputers with ourselves all the time. And imagine when we will have 10 supercomputers in our houses, all connected to the internet. So I think that the time for a fundamental shift in computer science is right because the problems themselves are massive. And we should focus more on Towards building systems and not just focus on small programming language details and build tools and some automation or whatever, small software, which is those things are really sort of isolated cases. Yeah.
0: And do you have any things and seeds of those ideas that can help people go from thinking in programs to systems and spark that transformation of thinking that you've seen either in your experience or from some of the people you've worked with or communicated with across the company, across the globe now, that say these are some of those ideas that can start to plant that seed that helps people make that transition from saying, yeah, I'm just writing it out, this program, it's it's a stupid shell script, to it's a little bit bigger program, to oh my god, we've got a whole (laughs) bunch of infrastructure running on this thing now.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, so I I gave a talk last year uh, at PyCon India. There is a video of of that talk. Maybe you can just link that video where I basically talked about this problem and I went into a little bit more detail about how we think and what the ground realities really are and how do we change our mindset. I think we need to educate ourselves. Even though we consider ourselves as programmers and We are highly educated, but we are extremely fashion-driven. That's one thing. Another thing is that most programmers have extremely shallow knowledge about their own fields. And they just think that learning some programming language or some tool will just be enough. But it's never enough, right? It's never going to be enough. So we need to educate ourselves. And there is no excuse today to not do that because... You know, all the resources are available. So we need to educate ourselves about the finer aspects of computer science and software engineering and building systems. Then we should also sort of learn how to make these decisions, whatever we decide about, whether it's the stack or some library or the architecture. We should learn how to make informed decisions and not really ride the hype train. Like everyone is using Kubernetes, I'm running a small blog, let me use Kubernetes also. It doesn't make sense. Maybe just a static site on GitHub will do, right? So we need to also learn to appreciate simplicity and where it's valuable and always strive towards achieving that. But somehow I realize that programmers take pride in complexity. We love the things which are complex and intricate, but just like a mechanical or a civil engineer can't take much pride in building a Rube bars machine. As programmers, we can't really take pride in writing that kind of code, right? We should think more about building bridges and not laying bricks. That's the example that I gave in my talk.
0: I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Cool. And I'm sitting there grinning along as you're talking about this because I just see some of the fact of... That's one of the things that I love about interviewing all these guests here is helping to give those different perspectives and see the different perspectives and try and at least help my understanding of everything that's out there and see how those fundamentals might actually play in across what everybody says is going on. And yeah, maybe it does make sense to put Kubernetes and use that for a blog. If you're just doing that as an experiment and you're planning on tearing it down, just so you know how it works. But yeah. Sure. Because people have asked me, like, why don't you write a blog? I'm like, because then I have to maintain it. I'd rather just blog or I'd rather just do this instead of write the code that has to maintain the blog just so I can put an article out. Right. Right. So you mentioned your conference. Do you have any other appearances coming up? Do you have any other presentations, either closure or in general?
1: So I speak very rarely actually these days. And only when I have something original to share. So it's mostly maybe one conference a year. I don't have anything planned for this year yet, but I'll tweet it out if I'm speaking somewhere.
0: And do you have any that are just even on your radar of maybe attending so people could, if they're in the area, if that conference is on the radar, that they may at least swing by and say, hi, maybe thanks or wherever? <laughs>
1: So yeah, I remember attending the first three closure conches, and those were amazing. And after that, I got really busy. I and mean, I, I live in India; I, I was not able to travel to the United States. So maybe this year, uh, closure conch, uh You know, later this year, I hope to be there. Let's see.
0: And I know Mohit got the idea of his next conference again. So maybe there as well. I don't know. Right?
1: Sure, sure, sure. So. Uh, enclosure was organized by me as well so i was with Mohit, right we were uh, a part of the organizing team and yeah so sure that's also going to happen this year
0: so we'll just this people can keep an eye out and if they wind up going to it they can make sure to say hello to you
1: yeah and then anyway they can follow me on twitter and there is anything i'll of course tweet it out
0: so we mentioned HelpShift. We mentioned Planet Closure. Are there any other projects or anything that you're involved with that you want to make sure plug or just things that you want people to look at from Closure and say whether or not you're in Closure or not? Maybe here's some interesting ideas. You mentioned the paper as well that Closure Spec is based off of. Is there anything else that you want to make sure people know about?
1: Nothing particularly. I don't have anything, honestly, right now.
0: Okay. And then where can people find you? You mentioned you're on Twitter. We can get the help shift site in the show notes. Where's the best place for people to come in and figure out what's going on with you in general?
1: Yeah, Twitter. I think Twitter will be best place.
0: And we'll get that on the show notes as well so people can always come back it and find that. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, BG, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was exciting to see how the closure community has kind of grown and evolved of Someone who's actually in it and see how the world of early entry into closure and maintaining it has gone as well. Mainly since I have came in, was on the edges learning it and then went off and did some other stuff, but it's always nice to be able to keep in touch with how these communities are developing. And I think it was a great conversation and knowing how your background and how closure has developed and what still appeals about closure for those out there. So it was a pleasure talking with you and once again, thank you for everything that you started to help build that community enclosure that helped me get my start. So very much a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for taking your time to join me.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Proctor. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.